Onasu. As you probably anticipated, this afternoon I'd like to move on to the fourth of the four measurables, equanimity. And rather than structure this one, I'd like to invite you to, uh, to strike your own balance, and that will be if there are 38 people, I think it's my count, 38 people here, it'll be 38 strikings of balance. That is, there's no one right answer. And the, the balance I'm speaking of is a balance between um, fluidity and structure. And the, and the structure would be that we, you know the, the, the formal structure of the cultivation of equanimity is it's overcoming the I-it relationship towards a person for whom we feel a lot of attachment, you know, and see this person is very desirable, I, I love you, I love you, because I really like being with you, and it's really about oneself, right? So overcoming that, seeing through the very pleasurable, pleasurable appearance of that person, and actually connecting with the person who is like ourselves. So we know this. So very briefly, to cut through the I-it relationship with a person who is viewed as a very pleasurable object, through the I-it relationship with a person who is seen as a neutral object, and of course, towards a person that we see as something negative. We don't like, they just appear, appear very disagreeable, right? So that's the structure of it. And to break down those barriers then opens up all the other three immeasurables, right? It makes the other three honest. It makes them authentic. Otherwise, loving-kindness, oh gosh, how many times a day is loving-kindness confused with attachment? Especially when you just use the four-letter word. Love, you know? It's a beautiful word, but so often fused with just a lot of other four-letter words, like lust, a lot of other, you know, other just like, I really like you. Um, and so, the fusion of loving-kindness with genuine, this, this what, what more noble virtue is there than this? We have from, what is it, Second Corinthians, from the Christian tradition, but it's a beautiful passage from St. Paul. But this, again, this is, this is a universal. Is it first or Second Corinthians? Do you remember? But, but you know, we're, we're, it's, I'm quite sure it's St. Paul's letter to the Corinthians. I mean, I'm going off on a tangent here. But the only point here is this is a universal. It's a universal, regardless of your theological system or lack of theological system. Love, but then it's confused with something that is simply not love at all. Attachment, compassion, so easily confused with simple sadness, grief, sympathy, or that kind of word that's become a little bit nasty. It wasn't in the 19th or 18th century, and now clearly it has a negative tinge. Another four-letter word, pity. Pity. Wouldn't you, don't you really feel good? No, if I, t no I, I just pity you. <laughs> Doesn't that just make you feel warm and cuddly all over, you know? <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so there we have... You know, that's easily mistaken. Empathetic joy ain't life grand. And equanimity, of course, has its own false facsimile. So the structure would then be breaking down the I-it relationships of all three flavors, right? Very clear. And then that opens the ground for authentic loving kindness, compassion, and empathetic joy just to, to flow boundlessly. So there's the structure is. But where the, I'd love to see the fluidity, and I'm going to be really pretty much entirely silent for this session. The fluidity is let your own mind move where it will, you know? Just move where it will, but see that over the course of the 24 minutes, you do, do, you do a light upon, like a butterfly alighting on a flower, you do a light on somebody for whom you feel, yep, I think there's some definite attachment here. Somebody for you feel, yep, definite, I don't care much, one way or another. And another one, um, I do care, I wish this person were gone something disagreeable. So make sure you alight on each of the three 
and just break down barriers. And you may just focus on three people, you may focus on 30 people or 30 million people. And that's where the, the fluidity, the creativity, your own artistic bent comes in. Okay? So, does that sound doable? If it is, I'm going to let you go into free flight for the next 24 minutes. See, a theme for today is evenness. Evenness in this morning's practice where we evenly rest awareness in its own nature without going out or in. An evenness of symmetry, an evenness of balance. So let's likewise begin this session, like all others, by establishing the balance and evenness of the body poised between relaxation and a posture of vigilance, the breathing poised between being forced and being constrained, and the mind, of course, balanced. Let's balance the body, speech, and mind, and then at your own pace, proceed into the main practice, and we will now practice in silence.
And let's bring the session to a close. So, just a couple of written questions. So, here's the question from Enrique. As I understand a defining characteristic of stage three, which is resurgent attention in my definition, is that in a consistent manner you no longer lose completely the object for 15, 20, 40 minutes. Not correct. Not correct. No, if you go back, um, I think for the next retreat, the one in fall, I will try to remind everybody, bring a copy of, of Attention Revolution with you. If you go back there and read the uh, or any classic presentation, but this one, it's 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 very it's a very rich presentation. Th no thanks to me, because I had these wonderful multiple uh, oral transmissions coming, especially from Genlam Rimba. He brought in some detail that I'd never heard from any other source, and so I think it, it's I don't know of any other book like it, and I'm kind of praising it objectively. Like I just put it, I'm more like the more like the editor, but so many strands came in there that um, I don't know of any, at least in English, I don't know of any other text that delineates those nine stages as clearly as that one text does. And then I just start bowing, because I had nothing to offer, you know. So again, I'm remember here, but really it's quite classic. The characteristic of the third stage, and I'll get to the rest of your question, I'm, sh I'm sure there's a good one coming, uh, is the third stage is, in fact, let, let me quiz you on this one, if you're on stage two, do you spend more time on the, off, on the object or off the object? Off. Yeah. If you're on stage three, more time on the object or off? Yeah. Which means that could be in a three-minute interval. You're on for two minutes, and then you probably won't be off for a whole minute. That's pretty sloppy. But that's not terribly high. If you're still, you know, if you're on most of the time, uh, that's not saying a whole lot. That's 51% by, by last reckoning, right? And so the characteristic there, if you want to know the defining characteristic, and this is useful, once again, I'll say it, I know it's so redundant, but not as goals, but as signposts, knowing that, well, if you're here, this is what you can expect. In meeting with you, uh, and I must say on the whole, I think really with no exception, I don't have to say generally, it's been really a pleasure meeting with you one-on-one. -on -one. I really enjoyed it. All of you, with no exception, you know. Um, and why did I mention that right there? Because, well, this last week there was a characteristic, a lot of people striving too hard. A lot of people, quite a number of people, pushing too hard, pushing too hard. Uh, I think it's, we're all quite clear now that there's only three weeks to go. Oh, pedal to the metal. Let's really get going here. Time is running out. Oh, right. And oh, I wanted to share my three R's. Three R's. I've told you, a number of you, my three R's. Three R's, like R-S-T-U-V. This is the motto. I want you to memorize it. Rel relentless resolve to relax. So when you say, oh, I've got to make faster progress. I'm, oh, I've got to try hard. I've got to, I've, I've got to do better. Good, now's the time for a relentless resolve 
to relax every out breath, not missing even one. Okay? So, I think I went off on a tangent, um, but there we are. So, the, the, the defining characteristic, this is good to know for each of these stages. Oh, false expectations, that's why I mentioned. This had come up. Some people getting frustrated. This is where I, my tangent and just commenting how much I enjoy meeting with you all individually. But a number of you have quite literally imposed suffering on yourself by having false expectations. This is one of the great boons of having a clear understanding of the nine stages and what delineates each from the other. Because if you're on stage three, you just don't expect to have qualities like stage six, right? Or if you're stage two, you don't expect qualities of stage three or, or stage four. And not having false expectations takes off a great burden, right? So some people practicing settling the mind in this natural state, still in stages one, two, three, sometimes commenting, oh, there's just so many of them, so many of them. Gosh, what am I doing wrong? Maybe I should make, make, maybe I should make them go away more. And then just think, wait a minute. Settling the mind is natural state. What's the metaphor for stage one, two, and three? Cascading waterfall. And it didn't say big cascading waterfall, medium cascading waterfall, <laughs> mm, trickling cascading waterfall. It just said cascading waterfall, right? So on those whole stages, you're going to look elsewhere for progress. Progress, I understand, it's not entirely a terrible word, uh, you know, to progress in the practice, not such a bad thing, but you don't expect it objectively. You don't expect it objectively that the, the sheer volume or amplitude of the thoughts, images, and so forth is going to get much less. Otherwise, he, would have, he could have easily, I mean, if with a stroke of a pen, you can give different metaphors for stage one, two, three. It's not so hard to do. Gave exactly the same one. And this was Lama Mipamarampache, this you know, formidable 19th century yogi and scholar. So, not having false expectations by having a sense, yeah, I think I'm pretty much stage two here. So if I'm off the object most of the time, well, that's stage two. Why should I be surprised? Now, you shouldn't be off for 15 minutes. When they say off most of the time, you may be off for five seconds and on for three, off for three seconds and on for two, but not off for 15, 30, 40 seconds, let alone 10, 15 minutes. It's too sloppy then you should make the session shorter, okay? Offer seconds, not so bad. Offer minutes, yeah, change the technique a bit. So finally getting back to Enrique's. So the, the defining characteristic of the third, the third, unlike the second, so you want to bracket it between the second and fourth, obviously, and the defining characteristic is that on the stage three, you quickly identify the occurrence of especially excitation, for, because for most people, that's the predominant imbalance, um, you quickly identify it, and you quickly apply the antidote. So it's called patched, lende jopa, lende jopa. It's patched mental, uh, mental application because you're cruising along and you'll have seconds. You know, if, you, if, if on stage two, you can maintain on occasion continuity without course excitation, without completely forgetting the object for up to a minute or so, then you can imagine it's even better on stage three. Two minutes, three minutes, you know, without completely disengaging. And so you're cruising along, one minute goes by, two minutes goes by, and then suddenly, that was a ripping sound, in case it wasn't totally obvious. Uh, the fabric, the fabric or the thread, the thread of your, but the fabric is better because I don't think threads generally rip, um, but fabric does. The fabric of your practice, in terms of the continuity over time, gets ripped. But you 
but it's just if, if I should raise my arm and rip, you know, under my armpit, and, and the, my, my uh, shirt rips here, I, I hear it, and I quickly recognize it, and then if I don't want to show my armpits, then I patch it up. So it's called patched, patched attention, because you're going to frequently lose it at stage three, frequently lose it 15, 20, 40 minutes. You'll probably lose it 10, 20, 30, 40 times, Some, somewhere in that, in that area, 10, 20, 30, 40 times. But you don't go off for seconds and seconds and seconds. You rip it, oh yeah, and it's resurgent. It comes right back again. Okay? In stage two, you can be on long, you can be off longer, right? And that's why you're more off the object than on. Get to stage four, and then you don't there's no more ripping in the fabric. And then it's something on the order of magnitude, something like thirty minutes, forty minutes, maybe an hour. That would be the general the general bracket of being able to sit down, not just once in a while, but when, you're really, when you've made your home on stage four, you've really earned it, you've, you've moved in, it's your real estate, you own it, then you're going to find most of your sessions. As a commonplace, you'll sit down for however, however long. It could be 35 minutes, 40, maybe an hour. Uh, probably not much reason to go longer than that. Um, in, a particular, in one session, why not take a break? Uh, but you'll find during that whole session, there's just no rip at all. There's no occurrence of course excitation. Medium and subtle, yes. Okay. Now, here's another footnote to these first four stages. You'll notice that in the classic presentations, there's no reference to laxity, to laxity on stage one, two, three, four. Laxity comes in and gets highlighted on once, you're, once you've achieved stage four and you're trying to stage, achieve stage five, and the complacency is not even worrying about coarse laxity. Right? So you settle into coarse laxity and you think this is really great meditation. You make a habit of it, and then they give all the warning signals. Now you're, you know, you can actually, how do you say, see your intelligence erode uh, by settling into that type of dull complacency. So they don't use the word, the technical term laxity. I haven't seen it much, if at all, referring to stages one, two, three. But there's another word, and I've, I've introduced this to a number of you individually. I can't remember what I, when I, whether I've done it as a group, and that is, it's a different word in Tibetan. Uh, it's, it's mukpa. And I'm translating it as dullness, as dullness. So if we look to the five hindrances, this is why whenever I say sloth and torpor, I always kind of start chuckling uh, because they're so gross. And I think these were when the early Pali translators, and, and you know, thank you for their work. I mean, they were pioneers. And hardly any time when you do a first draft translation is it just incredibly fantastic. You work out the kinks as the decades go by. But at what the early translator calls sloth and torpor, that's laxity and dullness. And laxity is subtle. That's something you're really concerned with at stage four. And dullness is coarser. And as a rule of thumb, what I would say is that if you just feel normal, the mind is normally clear, you sit down and you feel, I'm fine, I'm awake, no problem, then that's not dullness. And then throughout stages one, two, three, four, just don't lose the level of vividness or clarity you had when you began. If you do, you're slipping into dullness. And that, I think that word is very, very transparent in English. You, don't need, a, you don't, need, don't need a commentary on that. When you get to stage four, you may have no sense of dullness, but now you're starting the real fine-tuning, going to stage five and on, and now you're looking at things that were never even a concern before. Coarse laxity, medium laxity, subtle laxity. Okay? So that's the first part of Enrique's question. So, in stage four, you no longer completely lose the object for the duration of the session. Yeah, that's quite true. The session, but probably won't be two, three, four, five hours. It's probably going to be 
45 minutes, maybe an hour, something like that. So what is the experiential difference between completely losing the object and partially losing the object? Could, there, there are, one can look at that on two levels, and I think it's worthwhile. So uh, you, you might recall among the five jhana factors, among the five jhana factors, there's, uh, what's it called, vichara and vitarka, or vitar vitarka and vichara, sometimes called applied thought and sustained thought, or another, and those are not incorrect, but another nuance to those is coarse examination and subtle examination. Coarse and subtle. They have both connotations there. Well, with that, with that in mind, thinking, hey, this is actually very relevant to shamatha to shama and achieving jhana, let's look at this question from a coarse and a subtle perspective. So from a coarse perspective, from this perspective, looking what's the difference between completely losing the object and partially losing the object, well, uh, if you've completely lost the object, then we would call that coarse excitation, and that is you sit and look, and you sit there, and you, if you're sitting in, sitting in the sitting position, you look like you're meditating, and in fact you're not at all. You're thinking about dinner. There's nothing else on your mind except for dinner. Okay, uh, you don't even know what practice you start while you're thinking about dinner. You don't know whether it was mindfulness of breathing, stage one, two, three. You don't know whether it's settling the mind, awareness, awareness, or oh, was this the four measurables? What, 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 <laughs> what? <laughs> Am I home or is this Phuket? Where am I? <laughs> mom, mom, <laughs> you know. That's coarse excitation. <laughs> all right, you just completely lose it. And I think we all know what that's like. It doesn't have to be the cartoon that I just gave, but you're just completely disengaged from the object. Your mind is totally daydreaming. Or it could be totally caught up in some sensory object. Maybe you hear some, some earth movers out here or if you're a bird watcher, you hear, what's that sound? What's that song? Ah, 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 you know? <laughs> and trying to figure out the bird, you know? That's bird watcher, that's a deeply ingrained habit. So that's completely losing the object, partially losing the object. This is where the, this is where this, the medium and subtle excitation come in. And that is, I've, I've sometimes spoken in the past of hum, uh, humoring. If I'm humoring somebody, it looks like I'm taping, taking them seriously, but I'm not really, right? So that's all clear. I, I, I'm speaking again to, to non-native English speakers. I think all the native English speakers. But to humor somebody does not mean to make a joke, but means like I'm pretending to take you, oh, yes, really, oh, really, aha, yeah, was that right? Mm -hmm. What an idiot. <laughs> you know, that's humoring in a not very nice way. Uh, parents will humor their children sometimes when they come up with really goofy ideas, but in a, in a very benevolent way. Well, sometimes we humor the object of meditation. So it may be the in and out breath. And so we, and I've given this cartoon before, but in breath, now when will it be dinner? I think I would really like some dessert, uh, out breath, right. Uh, and then dinner, I think among the desserts, I didn't have any meat for lunch, in breath, good, good, in, in breath, right. And out breath, but I definitely want a salad, I'm really in the mood for salad. Uh, out breath was it? Okay, out breath, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, bee, 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 it's the commentary, it's the commentary. And so, if the, if the commentary is like the louder station and the breath is, yeah, yeah, I'm with you, I got you, yeah, yeah, I'm giving you all the attention you need. <laughs> if you don't deserve much, you're just the breath, what do you expect? <laughs> you know? If most of the attention is caught up in the commentary, or again, it could be a sensory input, then that's losing it partially. Or you could be primarily on the object, really quite focused, but you got the little conceptual flies buzzing around your head. And you're, they're more of annoyance, they're back there in the periphery, 
they're there, you do hear them, but you really are quite focused on the object. That still is a partial losing. So one thing I would encourage, again, in the spirit of developing a relentless resolve to relax, and that is there is time when we say, I'd really like to do better here. I'd like, you know, last session was really sloppy. It was just sloppy. I, I wasn't, that was not very focused. I'd like to do better this time. That's not a bad motivation. I'd like to do better. That last one was sloppy. Okay? Then what can you do? Well, mindfulness of breathing would be a really good one. And in the mindfulness of breathing, then where are you going to apply this? I want to do better now. Apply your relentless, your relentless resolve not to clamping down and immediately my, my hand goes into a fist, constricting, tightening up, and then maybe furrow your brow. That might work. Not doing that, but saying, all right, here's where my... Here I'm going to really apply my resolve. Every outbreath I'm going to really relax. And I'm going to relax so much that every outbreath I'm going to release every thought that comes up. Big, small, happy, sad, whatever they are. I'm going to be so into relaxing, I'm going to go professional. I'm going to be a professional relaxer. And let's see if I can do it. Oh, that was good. That was really, if you'd seen my mind, you would have said, Pa, that was really good. <laughs> I, could, I could start going out for the Olympics here, I think, you know. How, you know, I want a gold medal and a relaxation. So, I mean, there wasn't a thought. There was just, whoo. And if you're, if you're that relaxed, <laughs> if you're that relaxed at the end, why would you want to stop? And then you just allow that breath to flow in. And then you're ready for the Olympics again. Here I go. <laughs> oh, here we go, you know. Down we go again. So that's where you can do it. But, you know, being really quite conscientious about it, of not even the blah, 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 the, the peripheral, not the center, just silence. And getting that silence by deeply relaxing with each out-breath. Okie dokie. So is there, absolute, is there absolutely zero cognitive fusion with thoughts in stage four? No, no, no. I wish. No, no, not absolutely. This is a very good question. I'll read it again. Is there absolutely zero cognitive fusion with thoughts in stage four? It's a very good question. The answer is emphatically no. That is, there, there is cognitive fusion. So to run through the criteria, the checklist, which if you can remember when you go home, which is now maybe three weeks or so, this can really help you to get that confidence not only here but when you're at home. Am I doing this correctly? I, this settling the mind. That's in a way, maybe the, in some ways the most subtle, the most elusive. Even awareness of awareness, it's just, boom, is it silent or not, right? Boom, am I there or not? It's really simple and it is subtle, but it doesn't have all these gradations, all the gradations of grasping that really are quite evident in your face, explicit in settling the mind in its natural state. So let's do the checklist. When you're practicing settling the mind into natural state, when can you be confident? Right now, I'm doing correctly. And you don't need that commentary. You just non-conceptually know, yes, this is it. This is accomplishing shamatha. And the checklist is, first of all, is your awareness right there in the immediate present. Not slipping off into the future or the past. Secondly, are you indeed attending to the space of the mind and not just to the visual, the auditory, the tactile? Is that where you're focused? Where are you focused? Are you focused on the space of the mind? And then, we, and then you might ask, well, how do I know? 
Because it's not here, it's not there. How, how do I know? Well, you're focused on that domain of experience that is not sensory. So by a process of elimination, not sensory. If it is sensory, it's not. If your attention is in a sensory field, any of the five, it's not. That's incorrect, right? If it's not any of the five, and you are attentive, then process of elimination. We only have six doors, and if you haven't gone through one of the first five doors, then you went to the sixth. But now, what's the, the, the affirmation of that? You say yes, and then you say hallelujah, right? Where's the affirmation? Defin oh, this confirms it. And I think you know. You have that sense, yes, this, I am attending to that non-sensual domain of experience, dharma datu, conventional dharma datu. And what's the affirmation? And this is the third point. When a mental event arises, I recognize it really quickly. Hopefully even immediately. It comes up, boom, I was there. I was just like, a, like a, a, at, the, at the door of my home. And somebody, a guest comes, and I'm just, good to see you, welcome, welcome. They don't wander in, is anybody home? Hello, hello, and I'm right there at the door. They come, ah, welcome. I see them as soon as they show up, right? So as soon as the thought, image, whatever it is, rises, you see it right there. That's a clear indication. That's three out of three. All of those are pretty straightforward. The fourth one is a subtle one, and that's what Enrique is referring to here. Could I be doing all of those three and still doing, doing the practice really wrong, really incorrectly? Is that possible? How, Anila? Yeah, and, and, and she doesn't have the microphone, but that's exactly the right answer. By having fusion with the image and being caught up in the referent of the image, the thought, whatever it may be. In other words, and, and, and you know this answer, I'm not, uh, there's no correction, that was exactly right. And the short answer is there's grasping. There's grasping. Now, the cognitive fusion, now, what, so let's, let's play, even, again, let's push this a little bit further. That was an excellent answer. Is that enough? And now I want you to really think subtly. You're in the present moment, you're in the space of the mind, event arises, you notice immediately, you're not cognitive fusing with it, you're not going to its referent. Is that sufficient? Or could you still be doing it really incorrectly? The way I phrase it, I think you must know. You could still be doing incorrectly. What could you be doing wrong? Not letting it go, or how about be gone? <laughs> you know, I don't like you. <laughs> this is an image I don't want here. Please go away. Yeah, exactly. So it's the grasping. Sepela mentioned the grasping of cognitive fusion, where you are thinking the thought. You're thinking about the referent of the thought. Absolutely right. But there are more subtle forms of grasping. And that is, I like this one. I don't like this one. I wish the mind would quiet down. I wonder if I could kind of encourage that. Could you please pipe down a little bit? I like it quiet in here. Oh, that's a good one. That one can stay. Oh, where is this going to go? Ah, yes. So whenever we see there's this movement, it's almost like movement metaphorically, like movement forward. Oh, yeah, good. Oh, not so good. Oh, maybe. Good, good. No, not good, not good. You know, that kind of thing. That's grasping. It doesn't necessarily entail cognitive fusion because I like this image. That's a nice image. That's a nice thought. That's a disgusting thought, even without going to the referent of it. If I should, and I won't give an example, but I could just string some words together that would be, that's really disgusting. 
without them having to think about the referee and say, well, that's not nice, that's not, that's not right speech. Right? And no need to give any example on that one. And so, this is the fourth criterion, and this, this is the one that's really subtle. Gradation upon gradation upon gradation. When do you know you're doing it right? Well, it won't be absolutely right. Not likely. Because grasping is not something we can turn off like a switch. We can't simply decide, I've had a lot of grasping, I'm going to stop now. I wish. Then we would just go, and I've had enough of not shamatha. I'm going to just do, I'm going to have shamatha right now. Um. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be nice. That'd be nice. And so, but what's the sense that, yes, this is, this is pretty darn good. The sense of motionlessness of your awareness. Remember that phrase, the fusion of stillness and motion. The union of stillness and motion. Which one's still? Your awareness. What's in motion? The events of the mind. Coming and going, loud and quiet, happy and sad, big emotion, no emotion. Coming and going all over the place. And you're so loose, so relaxed, so non-grasping that your awareness is like space and the thoughts are coming, going, coming, going, coming, going. And you're simply observing them and unmoved by them. Unmoved by them, you don't cringe when unpleasant ones arise. You don't lunge when pleasant ones arise. You're as loose and as still as space itself. Okay? So that was, hopefully, that was quite quintessential. If you can remember those points, then you can practice with confidence, not only here, but when you go home. Confidence, confidence is enormously important. To be in the midst of the practice. Remember, one, again, one of the five obscurations. That uncertainty. And it's not, it's not primarily about doctrine. Does, well, is reincarnation literally true? Or I'm not quite sure, you know, that... Whatever, I mean, there's times for that. But it's really not in shamatha. It's more, am I doing this correctly? Is it, was that correct? Maybe I'm not doing this correctly. Am I progressing fast enough? I'm not sure. Maybe I, maybe I know good at this. I'm not quite sure. If that's your final answer, that's a dead end. That's a dead end. If you're doing it and you don't even know whether you're doing it correctly or not, how, how, do, how do you extricate yourself from that one? Maybe you can read a good book. Maybe you'll listen to the podcast all over again. Um, but I can't be equally available for everybody at all times. I kind of wish I could, but that's beyond my capacity. So getting that confidence is really important. So there is, there is grasping. Until how long? Probably stage seven, stage eight. Subtle grasping. There's subtle excitation. There's a possibility of subtle excitation on stage seven. Right? And so, very subtle. It'll be very, very subtle, but you will see it. Okay? And then when you get an eight, nine, and finished, then grasping it. Now, can we say there's absolutely no grasping? Well, no, we can't, because even after you've achieved shamatha, there is conceptualization. It's not absolutely non-conceptual. And where there's conceptualization, if there's conceptualization, there's grasping. If there's conceptualization, there's grasping. And then we see how the gradation is. If I should point, oh, is Mugi here? Oh, oh yeah, there's Mugi. I've labeled this person Mugi. That's a form of zimbare. That's a form of grasping. It's not malevolent. It's not malevolent. It's not bad. It's, nothing, there's not, it's not diluted. Is Mugi here? Yeah, he's right here. But it's still grasping. 
right? Because I've demarcated him, I've set him apart from everything that is non-mugi, and there's conceptual imputation there. It's a form of benign grasping. Okie dokie. So, is there some level of weak cognitive that does not have? Is there some level of weak cognitive fusion that does not have the power to completely throw you away? The answer is yes. Oh, for sure. That is, weak cognitive fusion, it's, yeah, that's a simple answer. Yes, there is. Okay, how about that one? There we go. So there's a good rich one. Here on a bit more theoretical one, um, but no, it's theoretical and practical, and it's anonymous. I'm quite content with that, no problem. So how then were atoms first conceptually designated? Well, there was um, atom. <laughs> Adam must have done it, right? Adam, Adam, maybe they just mispronounced his name. I don't know, that's being silly. Um, when were Adams first conceptually designated? Well, they've been around for a long time in India, in India, in Indian philosophy, thousands of years. It goes, it goes back to Democritus in the Western tradition, so the idea of atoms, of there being indivisible little, little components of matter from which then complex configurations make the whole of the world. But I think the interesting question here uh, is... Which came first, the atom or the atom designator? Right? And I'll, I'll make an allusion first. I think it's a fascinating allusion, and I think it's very deep. And this is, again, from one of my favorite theoretical physicists, and he was world-class. That's, again, not an opinion. He was at the Institute for Advanced Studies at, in Princeton. This is John Archibald Wheeler. And... Uh, some of his, his theorizing, and it wasn't, it wasn't, I think it's an injustice to call it, this is just metaphysics, just philosophizing. He was a theoretical physicist doing superb theoretical physics work. And that means dealing with ideas. And then hopefully, if they really come to fruition, the ideas lend themselves to some type of experiment. But you don't expect him to do that at every single stage, otherwise you put the theoretical physicist in a straitjacket. So, in John Archibald Wheeler's writings, in, 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 in specifically in this field of quantum cosmology, he speaks of, first of all, he said, an inversion of what is the commonplace. And the commonplace, the, the common view, the mainstream view. And the mainstream view is, first there is physical stuff, and then there's information, and then there are the observers, or people who observe and make sense of the information. So, you know, 13.7 billion years ago, give or take, so matter started happening, and then out of that, then we get information about the matter. And then because there's information, then we get people picking up the information from the universe. Oh, we're getting some information from the Andromeda galaxy. Something, a supernova is happening in the Andromeda galaxy. We're getting some information. Oh, good. Bring in the astronomers. So that's the classic, and that's very familiar. And he said, now I want to turn that on its head. And he said, first of all, there is the sheer experience of the observer-participant and because there is an observer, therefore you can speak of information, because without the observer, the word information semantically, and again, just drawing that distinction, there is a non-semantic use of the word information in physics, fine, it's a separate issue, and it's really very separate, but John Wheeler speaking as a physicist, but now using the word information more like we use the word, that is information as in conveying meaning, informing. He said, in order for information to take place, there must be an observer, there must be someone who is informed. If you don't already have an, someone who, who's ready to be informed, then information never takes place. So this act of being informed, the transference of information, can take place if and only if you have someone who can make sense of it. 
If you don't have that, you, no information takes place, zero, no show. But the observer participant's there, then relative to that observer participant, there can be the information and the conveyance, the, the, how do you say, the transmission of information, uh, but that trans transform the transference of information has to be about something. It can't be, hey, I've got something to tell you. Okay, and what's that, you know? There was no information, so nothing happened. Something has to follow, and I have to give you information about something. Even if it's about unicorns. So in books, there are a lot of stories about unicorns, and I can tell you about unicorns as they're described in books. So he turned this on his head, John, John Archibald Wheeler does, and he said there has to be, first of all, what is primary here is the observer participant. And André Lindt, another first class, I don't know if he's world famous, but he certainly is a first class physicist and, and astrophysicist at Stanford University. Done a lot of work in the inflationary period of cosmic evolution, absolutely top drawer. He's proposed this also, that what is primary here is our actual perception. And out of that, that is the basis for everything that we say about the universe. Space, time, mass, energy, everything, all of this, everything we know is derivative of having consciousness. So he suggested, this is Andre Lin, maybe we should consider that consciousness may not be simply a dependent variable that is dependent upon the occurrence and the configurations of matter, but rather an independent variable. There is consciousness without having to allude to matter, to brains, to physical phenomena, as one of the elemental constituents of the universe. That's Andre Lint, and I can give you the sources on that. Coming back to, to, uh, to John Wheeler, though, and they're, they're speaking along similar lines here. John Wheeler says, you need the observer participant, that allows the possibility for information, and once you have information, and we could paraphrase that as appearances are coming in. That is, you look through a telescope and you're getting information. What does the information consist of? Appearances. You, look, you, do, an M, you do an MRI scan, and then you look at the, at the, you know, the print, the, the scan, and you're getting information about the person's brain. What are you getting? Appearances. The appearances may be auditory, they may, usually they're visual, but they can be a combination of the two. Information is appearances, right? So I'm, I'm afraid I'm going on a bit too long. I'll try to gonna just get to the point here, although all of this is the point. Um, out of a, in, information, in brackets, appearances, when we make observations, out of information, then we human beings, we define, we not God, not nature, but we human beings, we define mass, energy, velocity, acceleration, inertia, spin, field, particle, wave, antimatter, matter, and the list goes on and on and on. All of these were defined by human beings. We didn't just pluck the definitions from nature. And so what we did have was appearances. We had sophisticated systems of measurement from which we get appearances, and out of those appearances, we then conceptually designate atoms. And I finally let the, sh the, 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 the shoe drop. Out of the appearances, we designate atoms based upon appearances. Now, the appearances themselves are not atoms, but based upon the appearances, you designate atom. And then you may redefine it, and redefine it, and redefine it, which has happened many, many times. And now we have a contemporary. That too will shift. So there is a relativity with respect to time here that I find really fascinating, and then I'll wrap, wrap up this question. And that is, the example I like to give is, I think it was about, again, I, 
the memory is like 20 years old, so it's not exactly precise. But as I recall, the discovery of the electron by Thomson was in the first or second, I think about 1911. I don't think, I'm, not, I'm not off by decades and decades. But let's take this as an example, and the details are not that important. The central, po the, po the central point is important. Let's imagine this is true. And then you just check out the history and you find out whether the details are true or not. That J.J. Uh, Thomson uh, discovered the electron, let's say, in 1911. And he defined it as a particle with no spatial dimension, with, an, with a negative charge, uh, with a certain mass, which is quite interesting, it has no spatial dimension, but it does have mass, it has this, and then eventually we'll learn how to spin, and it can have momentum, since it has mass and it, has, it, and it moves, it has momentum, and so you, you can then identify and you can measure this particular type of particle that is distinct from all other particles. There are, anti, there are positrons or anti-electrons, but there we have it, this is an electron. How did you get that? Did you actually see one? No, there were appearances, and based upon those appearances, we make the designation, and we human beings define electron based upon the particular type of measurements we made. So let's imagine that was 1911. Now, this word electron is still in usage, as we all know. That is, every physicist, I think, believes in, believes in the existence of electrons. But in 1910, they didn't, because the word didn't mean anything. Right? But from 1911, it did, and it was well-defined. It wasn't just some concoction, oh, I believe in unicorns, let's define them. Now, this is science. They had very good measurements. They had, they had appearances. They did their experiments very rigorously. That's why they got Nobel Prizes, and not just um, Nobel Prizes in physics, rather than Nobel Prizes in literature, right? For, for coming out with beautiful poems or novels. And so, one can ask, well, from the perspective of 1910, do electrons exist? The answer is, that's a meaningless question. Because in 1910, the word electron didn't exist, it had no definition, so to ask whether it existed or not doesn't mean anything. That's like asking right now, do schmorbles, schmorbles exist? That's with a S-C-H-M. Schmorbles, do schmorbles exist? Noah thinks yes. But, he, he, but he's the optimistic sort, <laughs> right? Well, if I can define it, maybe I could, you could answer it, but if I say, no, no, no I, I, there's no definition. I just want you to know. I want you to tell me. There is no defin definition for schmorble, but do they exist? Well, you say, well, there's just no answer to that question. I can't even say they don't exist, because for me to say they don't exist would mean I know how to, I know how to identify them. I looked, and they're not there. So you can't even say it doesn't exist. It's, just, it's, it's a not a meaningful question. In 1910, the question, do electrons exist, is not a meaningful question. The word doesn't mean anything. So now, from the perspective of 1911 until now, a bit more than a century later, for that 100 and 101 years, no, not, wait a minute, 99 years, um, from this bandwidth, have electrons existed for billions of years? Or did the electrons first come into existence when they were measured and defined? That's kind of an important question. You get it wrong and everything goes completely wacko. So what would you say, Enrique? Did electrons exist a billion years ago? Given, given that I'm speaking from this, within this framework of 1911 until 2010, speaking within this framework, uh, this cognitive reference, did electrons exist a billion years ago? <laughs> he's... he's putting his head like he's got a real headache coming on. <laughs> protect, your, protect your girlfriend, otherwise I'll ask her and then she'll go, hey, hey. <laughs> so, okay, what's it going to be? 
Did electrons exist a billion years ago? I need a yes or no. <laughs> I need a yes or no and I get mmm. <laughs> I beg your pardon? Not as who defines them? No, I didn't say that though. Let's let's make it let's make it let's go ahead and say now. Okay? Because clearly the, the very nature of electrons, I don't think Thompson knew about spin, did he? I doubt it. That came probably later. Um, so let's say 2010. From the perspective, let's get really comfortable here. 2010, physics, as far as you know. From our perspective right now in 2010, did electrons exist a billion years ago? We believe that they exist, but they're going to be fine because they're like a cartoon today. You can't give me a yes or no on this one? <laughs> did it, I mean, I'm just asking like, Daddy, did electrons exist a billion years ago? I couldn't hear. I, I've got to hear that one. What do you say? In a way, yes. In a way, no. Oh, that really clears things up. <laughs> I think you should have traded in philosophy rather than physics. Well, on the one hand, on the other hand. <laughs> Let me tell you one of my favorite jokes, and it's a true story from physics, if you don't mind. We got, we got some minutes here, but it's a really charming story. And it's a true story. I, I, I think I learned it from my beloved physics mentor, Arthur Zions. I think he was one of what told me at Amherst College. A true story, though. Uh, and that is, you might recall it, Enrique, it's of a graduate student, like a PhD student, I think it was, yeah, it was a PhD student going for his PhD exam his doctor, his, um, doctor exam, or what do they call it, doctor Arbeit exam. Uh, but his professor, world-class, von Weizsäcker, von Weizsäcker, German or Austrian, do you remember? But, but he was Germanic, clearly, von Weizsäcker. Uh, brilliant physicist, world-class. And this, this graduate student, obviously studying physics, par particle physics, he's coming in for his oral exams bef be before a genius. He's coming in before a genius. He, everybody knows that. The man was brilliant. I've read some of his work. It's spectacular. And so he's going along in his oral exams. This is whether he gets his, his PhD or not. So the, the stakes are high. And von Weizsäcker turns to him and he says, and I won't try to do the German accent. I would butcher it. But tell me, young man, what exactly is the nature of an electron? And the, the student just froze like a deer in the headlights. Because <laughs> I can imagine him going through the Rolodex of his memory. When did he first learn about electrons when he was 13 years old? And you had the, golf, the big golf ball and the little golf balls. And they would go around and then sometimes they would jump from one track to another, and they had little negative signs on them. The electrons are the little golf balls with negative signs, and they jump from one track to another. It's basically a trolley system. He thought of that one, which, was, uh, it, which was, wasn't actually a real idea, but it was antiquated within about two or three years after it came out. He thought of that, and he said, I can't give a junior high school answer. That one, then he will just throw me out the window. And then he went through high school. One can imagine he's going through his high school understanding and then undergraduate understanding. And then he's drawing on the latest cutting-edge physics of exactly what is an electron. And he's just staring there like a deer into the headlights. And finally, he knows he's got to say something. And he says, I used to know it, but I forgot. <laughs> 
To which von Weizsäcker responds, I have to do the German, so just forgive me. What? You forgot? Nobody knows what an electron is, and you forgot? <laughs> so, I think we have to forgive partially, not completely, but only partially forgive Enrique for saying in a way yes or a way no. He's just covering his vets here, you know? And so I'll give the answer to the question. From the perspective of 2010, did electrons exist a billion years ago? The answer is, of course they did. I mean, we know, we know a lot about the early formation of the universe, the breaking of symmetries, the multiple breaking of symmetries during the inflationary period, the separation of, of mass and of energy, of, of antimatter and matter, uh, the expansion of space-time. We know and a, a billion years ago, by a billion years ago, many billions and billions and billions of galaxies have formed. And they're made of elementary particles, of which, of course, elementary particles are ex in extreme profusion. So to a billion years ago, even the Earth existed five, you know, five billion years ago. Were there any electrons on planet Earth a billion? Of course there were. How can, how can one even question that? From the perspective of 2010. From the perspective of 1910, the question doesn't mean anything. Now, let's imagine, so all of this is... I would say this is true. Relative to 2010, yes, electrons have, ex have existed since some seconds, I don't know exactly, but you know, a short time after the Big Bang. But now let's make this more interesting. Einstein, I've read a long time ago, when I was an undergraduate, uh, he saw the difficulty of a, a theorem that had both fields and particles. To have a theorem that had fields and particles, and then try to understand precisely how the fields and particles interact was problematic. It's not simple, and there were problems built into it. And he envisioned, hypothetically, what a wonderful thing it would be if some brilliant physicist would come up with a pure, pure field theory and dispense with these elementary particles and have it just fields and fields. And if you have just fields and fields interacting, that's a lot neater than having particles interacting with fields. It's just a neater system. So he, he just imagined, well, if that could happen, that would be a big step ahead. Complete field theory. Okay? So I think my memory's clear here. Now, nobody's done it, but it was a, a, an ideal that he had in mind. And so let's imagine now that um, now it's 2010. Let's imagine 10 years from now, there's some extraordinary young woman prodigy at MIT with the age of 18. We'll call her Joan Smith. She's just one of those kids who's doing you know, advanced calculus when she's six years old. She gets up to MIT when she's 13, finishing her PhD. And she, sees, she, she hears about Einstein's idea. And she goes out for a weekend, no, let's say a month, on Cape Cod. And, she, and it happens. She just gets it. And she comes back, and it's all laid out theoretically, mathematically. It's, it's just a sublime system. And it's just an outstanding, tremendous leap ahead. And it's a complete field theory. In which case, electrons, protons, all these, this whole host of elementary particles, no longer useful. It's all fields. And she gives them the new names, because they're not just electron field and positron field. Now, this is just a spectacular, great breakthrough. And so all of the references to elementary particles now, this theory is so much better and it accounts for anomalies that earlier physics didn't account for. This accounts for everything that the previous theory did, and it accounts for anomalies the previous one couldn't, and it's just spectacularly beautiful mathematics, like string theory, it's of that beauty. And she presents it, they give her a PhD immediately, and then give her an endowed chair at 
you know, uh, UC Santa Barbara. <laughs> That's in 2010. And the word gets out, they publish it in Science, Nature, they publish it in all the premier journals in various mutations and so forth. It is so spectacular, it is so fantastic that it just sweeps the scientific world. And all the physicists look at it and say, oh man, I'm a believer. It just, it just makes converts immediately. By the end of 2020, got 2020 vision finally, um, everybody accepts it. Fantastic. From the perspective of 2020, did electrons exist a billion years ago? No. Nor did, they exist in two, nor did they exist in 1911, nor did they exist in 2010. They don't exist at all. They've never existed. From the perspective of 2020, they never existed. But what does exist is this spectacular array of fields. Now, 50 years later, that gets you know, supplanted by another theory, and from that perspective... So the point here is that phenomena come into existence retrospectively, relative to the cognitive frame of reference. So, electrons did exist. Right now, I still believe in electrons. I don't know really what they are. But generally speaking, little bitty particles with a negative charge, I'll go with that one. Um, that's what I would have said. Little bitty particles, negative charge. Yeah, I got my PhD. Um, I will say electrons exist from this, relative to this cognitive frame of reference. Take away this cognitive frame of reference, take away the observer, participant. Take away the conceptual designator, and then ask, do electrons exist? And the answer is, you've just asked a meaningless question. Take away the conceptual designator, the conceptual designator, who is one who made up the designation electron. You can't take it out and still ask, does the orphaned electrons exist or not? It's a meaningless question. So, when did atoms, when were they first conceptually designated? Well, historically, by, by early Indian, Indian thinkers, by Democritus and so forth. But they came in big time in the end of the 19th century and then very big the first two decades of the 20th century and we have then a host of, of, of atoms, of molecules, of elementary particles, but especially elementary particles come in and they do all exist then. Why is it so? There we go. That's an answer there. And that's true for everything else. It's not only true for electrons, it's true for oranges and planets and stars and galaxies and dark holes and everything else without exception. As it says in the classic Madhyamaka literature, everything from form up to the omniscient mind, or everything from a particle up to the omniscient mind of a Buddha. And every, what they're just saying is, okay, let's imagine these are the bookends. The most simple particle of matter all the way up to the mind of a Buddha. Everything and everything in between exists by the power of conceptual designation. Does not exist by its own inherent nature. Which means you can't say, does it exist? without saying relative to whom, relative to what conceptual framework. You can't, it, it, it's, a, it's a meaningless question. So there we go. Why is it so difficult to not grasp? Is it fear that causes grasping and afflictions? Fear, fear certainly plays a role. Um, but the easier answer here, maybe I'll give a shorter one since I give such a long answer to the first one. Why is it so difficult to not, not to grasp? Because it's a, such a deeply ingrained habit. There's the easy way out. It's a deeply ingrained habit. Grasping manifests in attachment, craving. Um, why, why is that so difficult to kick? Even when we see something is not an, a, a true source of happiness, the craving still happens. Habit, really deep habit. Why do we get angry at things when we know, hey, anger doesn't help, 
if there's something you do about it, do it. If there's nothing you do about it, why be upset? So Shantideva's aphorism, why? sheer habit. And then why do I grasp onto myself? Why do I reify myself as separate from everybody else, existing by my own inherent nature? Habit. When did it all begin? No identifiable beginning. So that's the easy answer. Is it just a, t- a tremendous momentum of sheer habit? Uh, is it fear that causes grasping? Well, not all. Sometimes grasping arises out of desire, craving. Sometimes it comes out of hostility. Sometimes it comes out of sheer delusion. Uh, when, in the practice of... And does it come out of afflictions? Sure, out of delusion, craving, and hostility. Um, but in the practice of shamatha in particular, more than one of you has expressed on occasion, and for a number of you, it's already passed through. Uh, but fear arising in the practice. It could be fear that has a target, a referent, and that is fear of death. Or it could be just going into the practice and just finding fear is arising and it has no referent, but that doesn't make the fear any less. And I would say my general interpretation of that, although there can be always specifics, uh, my general interpretation of that is when your mind does become very quiet. The conceptual designation is just getting lighter and lighter, softer and softer. It's going down. Mind's just getting quiet. Then your awareness the locus of your awareness is as, now that it's no longer being held up by or suspended in a network, almost like a spider's web of thinking and associative memories and associative thoughts and images and imaginations and hopes and fears and the whole network of it called prapancha, conceptual elaborations, or trupa, trupa. As the conceptualization is diminishing, then the mind gradually is loosened from that network of compulsive, obsessive, conceptual elaborations, and it, beca- it, begins to, it begins to come home. Comes home, which is what it does every time we fall deep asleep, it starts to gravitate down to the substrate consciousness. Well, that's fine if you're losing consciousness. So, you know, you're losing your mind, but as you lose your mind, you also lose consciousness. Then, you know, not many people freak out or get terrified when they're, oh, I'm about to fall asleep. You know, not, not too common. Uh, but if you're falling asleep and you're fully present all the way through, as you know, the analogy in this practice, then you're losing your mind, but you're aware of it as it's happening. And you're losing your mind, but you're also losing your sense of personal identity, which is maintained in a robust, tangible fashion by designating I am, I am, I am, I am in multiple variations. Thinking about oneself, my thoughts, I'm thinking this, I'm commenting that, and so forth and so on. That's releasing. And so, in releasing that, you may be facing a fear of annihilation. That if I don't keep on thinking myself into existence, I may lose the ability to think myself into existence, in which case, I become the unthought, the unthought, the unimagined, the non-existent. And that sounds scary. I might actually have to be there to witness it. And I'm not sure I'd like that, to be there and not be there. So, a fear of death, a fear of annihilation can come in. And um, then when simply goes back to the practice, until you realize through your own experience that there's nothing to fear. The substrate is not a scary or dangerous place. Is it more, is, is it more that we grasp onto appearances in order to know something? Uh, sure, we do. We grasp onto appearances. On the basis of appearances, we impute things and thereby know them. We impute a thing and then say the thing has such and such qualities which are in the realm of appearances. So if you've ever seen a, um, 
a uh, photo or a, re a representation, a picture of traces of elementary particles in a, in a, in a uh, bubble chamber, in a bubble chamber. Uh, you'll see all kinds, not all kinds, but you'll see spirals, you'll see big arcs, you'll see some straight lines, you'll see some, some going counterclockwise, some going clockwise, and so forth and so on. So you'll see all of these, and that's an appearance. And these are, if we interpret them according to standard interpretation, these are traces left behind by different types of elementary particles, with charge, without charge, positive charge, negative charge, and they're leaving their traces in the bubble chamber. Well, when you look at those traces, these little squiggly lines and the straight lines and so forth and so on, if you ask, well, oh, I like this little squiggly line here. Uh, what's that? What is that squiggly line? If somebody actually literally said, that is an electron, well, that'd be foolish. I mean, you mean, oh, you mean electrons like a worm? No. Okay, it's not an electron. Then what is that line? Oh, that's, that's left behind by the electron. What about this straight line? That's left by a photon. It has no charge. And so the, these are the indicators, these are the signs. The, and now, and now, we say, now you see, this is a quality of the photon. It has no charge, therefore it's a straight line. This is the quality of this, 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 this. And so now the appearances become qualities of that which, you, which we've imputed. And you say, well, yeah, but I just want to see the electron. I don't want to see the traces. I just want to see the electron itself. Lots of luck with that one. Because no matter what you do, you're going to always see an appearance which was made by the electron. But you're not going to get the electron itself. So, and that's true for everything else. Not knowing, we, not, not knowing we can know what is real. Like what, is it, or is it more that we grasp onto appearances in order to know something, not knowing that we can know what is real? We cling from appearance to appearance in order to exist uh, as we think we are, yes, in order to feel as if we know? Sure, why not? I think so. Okay? And that's very good. We have 5.59, and David has roughly a one-minute announcement.